We heard Psalm 25 earlier in the service. It's a psalm of hope. It's a psalm of God's mercy. Psalm 25 helps us to understand. Do you ever, do you ever understand or know um, why it is that the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah? A lot of times we want to focus on the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, the Roman occupation of Israel, right? We want to think about that. But the reality of it is the deliverance from sin is in the very DNA of the Israelites long before the Roman occupation began, long before Jesus was on the face of the earth. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve sin. They disobey God. And in their disobedience, we see the first sacrifice made. We see an animal slaughtered so that Adam and Eve can be clothed in their shame and in their nakedness. And then God puts them out of the Garden of Eden. But Psalm 25, it's an insightful description of prayer. We heard it in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Some translations say to you, Lord, I lift up my soul or, oh, Lord, I give my life to you. Lord, I give myself to you. What I find interesting is in all of these, the idea that we can lift our lives up to worship in God. Now, this, again, is part of a, a Jewish tradition. This lifting of one's life parallels what they did in prayer when they lifted their hands to God. We've all seen that really cute Tim Hawkins video about the different hand raising during worship service, right? It's always funny. Coming from a Pentecostal background, it's even funnier because there's a lot, you see a lot more of it. Um, as, as a kid growing up, I did. I was like, oh, yeah, I know this one. I know this one. I know this one. You know, I know that one. I know, you know, every single one of them I know. But you know what? Back in Jesus' time, back even before that in Moses' time, lifting up one's hands in a stretched out position was a gesture of appeal used in prayer to lift your soul up to God. And this, this psalm is, is a metaphor of what that gesture means. What does it mean when we see this usually? I give up. I surrender. What was it you said, Pastor Terry? <laughs> yeah. Somebody's under arrest, right? <laughs> Police chaplain over there. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But there is a form of submission. There is a form of making yourself vulnerable, right? You're not protecting. You're not guarding. When you're like this, you're vulnerable, Lifting your soul to God. The metaphor portrays a prayer. It, it portrays an act in which individuals hold their sentient identity, their entire life in their hands stretched out to God. It's a way of saying, God, my life completely, absolutely, fully depends upon you. That's what trust, that's what hope, that's what faith in God looks like. God's mercy, throwing yourself at God's mercy. 
Make a way for sin to be defeated. Make a way for humanity to enjoy communion with the creator. We often skip over the fact that in the cool of the evening, we miss this in, in, in Genesis for some reason, that God would come in the cool of the evening and walk and talk with Adam and Eve. I don't know what that's like. I've experienced the presence of God in many different ways and many different times, but I don't believe I've quite experienced that. I can't wait for that. This particular psalm would have been written somewhere around 540 years before Christ was there, would have been during the Babylonian occupation, some 200 years after the book of Isaiah, which holds much of the prophecy regarding the salvation of Israel uh, about the Messiah. So I want to read to you this morning so that we can understand maybe a little more fully the, the desire or drive the Israelites would have had to trust in God's mercy for everything, trust for God to bring the Messiah, and that comes from, oh, let's see here. Kevin, I might need your help. There we go. People of Jacob, why do you complain? People of Israel, why do you say the Lord does not see me? What happens to me? He does not care if I am treated fairly. Surely you know, surely you have heard the Lord is the God who lives forever, who created all the world. He does not become tired or need rest. No one can understand how great his wisdom is. He gives strength to those who are tired and more power to those who are weak. Even children become tired and need to rest and young people trip and fall. But the people who trust the Lord will become strong again. They will rise up as an eagle in the sky. They will run and not need rest. They will walk and not become tired. Isaiah 40 is set during a time of exile and upheaval, God's people. God had judged the Israelites for their disobedience by allowing the Babylonians to conquer them and send them into exile in Babylon. And that whole first section of Isaiah describes the judgment of God's people and the reason for it. But then in chapter 40, God speaks through Isaiah to comfort his people, to give them hope, to bring to them a promise of restoration. It's kind of where we are now, isn't it? We're in this second season of waiting. We call it the second advent. We're waiting for Christ's return. And things are not nice. Even in places where we have freedom, sometimes it doesn't feel very freeing to be a Christian. I want uh, those of you who have kids to think about this for a minute. Think about a time when they were younger. Think about a time, maybe you work with kids. Maybe you don't have kids, but maybe you work with kids. Think about a time when you work with kids and, the, and, the, and one of the children come up and they're like, mom, 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 dad, dad, or, or whatever. Maybe they're tapping at you or pulling on your clothes. You're trying to have a conversation. You're trying to get something done. And finally, you tell the child, hold on just a minute. I'll be done in a moment. Easier said than done, isn't it? 
You ever, you ever watch the kid out of the corner of your eye? I always thought it was bad when the first thing that they said after I made him wait for a while was, I got to go to the bathroom. That's one of those things that, you know, when you have a three-year-old or even a four-year-old, you can't wait a minute or two. That is an interruption you have to take or you'll be cleaning up some mess, right? But you know what? We all struggle with waiting. We all struggle. Maybe we're waiting for a dream to come true. Maybe we're waiting to finish high school. Maybe we're waiting to have a promise be fulfilled. Or, or maybe we're just waiting for someone in our family to get ready so we can all come to church. How does that happen, right? I remember those days. There were five of us to get ready. Well, a lot of times as the kids were older, there was more than that. Advent is kind of like that. It's a time of anticipation. We celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas, and we, we walk through this time of Advent, but it's also kind of a parallel to what we live in now. An anticipation. You remember when you were a kid and you were just waiting for that first snow? We used to have snow days where I lived. I can remember in East Wenatchee, if it snowed enough the night before or the morning of, and they didn't get the bus routes plowed, we'd sit and listen by the radio. School closures. We'd listen for that. Is it gonna? Is it gonna? Our school gets called, oh, Eastmont School District. Yes, we get a snow day. That means we don't have to get ready for school. We don't have to turn in homework that we didn't do the night before. I mean, all of that stuff, right? But you know what? Anticipation can create a little bit of excitement. It can create a little bit of anxiety. Sometimes I'm sure my mom didn't appreciate snow days when we were younger because that meant she had to find somebody to watch us. A little bit of frustration, a little bit of stress. And in this time, in the age that we live in now, those of us who know Jesus, who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're kind of told, hurry up and wait. We're kind of living in the right now and the not yet, but will be coming, right? That's kind of a difficult place to be. That's what Isaiah was telling the Israelites. Hope. And if we listen closely, we can glean hope from his words today while we wait for Christ's return. When you read about uh, St. Augustine, you often see there's many who would believe him to be the most significant Christian thinker after Paul. Now remember, Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. By doing so, uh, he shaped all sorts of different things. But Augustine shaped the practice of what we call biblical exegesis. Now, I didn't know what that word was until I went into my classes to become a pastor. But what is this exegetical paper? What is exegetical? Charlie, you're nodding your head. Dave's kind of sitting there going, oh, no. Did you have to write exegetical papers, Dave? Pastor Dave? Did you have to? Yeah, me too. Pastor Terry, you had to, I may have written some for you in some of the classes you taught on the district. I may have written some. I hope you don't remember. 
I remember one of the exegetical papers I had to write. I was slow signing up for it. I had switched over to Nazarene Bible College online. I was slow switching over to it, um, to getting in my choice for this assignment. There was a whole bunch of different subjects you could sign up for. Each student got one, and I had like the last thing picked, and wouldn't you know it, it was on sanctification, right? That's what it always is, you know. It's the doctrine we teach in the Church of the Nazarene. We talk about it a whole lot, and yet we do some of the most worst explaining of it, I think, in the course of my lifetime. It's gotten a little bit better, right? But I don't think we explain it very well, and we don't talk about it often enough, and we don't discuss it, and sometimes we don't live it, right? But I got stuck with it. Now, these professors at Nazarene Bible College, they have lots of different classes in person at the time. And then also then these classes that were online for several students that were across the country, really all over the USA and Canada. And so they had what they called word limits on their papers. I had done a lot of work on it. I, had, I, I think even Pastor Orville Swanson helped me out with a few things. You know, I, I wanted to get this right, you know, because this is a big deal. And here I am having to write about this. And I get my paper back. And he gives me a 99 out of 100. So I'm looking. You know, because you submitted them in Word. I was disappointed. I know, Leanne's laughing at me. I was disappointed. So I start looking for, well, what did I say wrong? What did I do wrong? And I, I start looking for the little side piece where it would show his comment. You know, what can I change? What can I say differently? What can I, because, you know, I hadn't yet been ordained. This was almost practice for my ordination interview, which Pastor Terry, you sat in on too on that one. Whew, I better be careful this morning. <laughs> I'm already ordained, right? So I start looking. There's no comment. There's not even anything in the email back him returning my paper. And I'm like, whoa, what was wrong? So at that point in time, it becomes a challenge. I want to know why did I get a 99 out of 100? Send a couple emails back and forth. And this particular professor never gives a 100%. But then he said this to me. He says, you know what? I told you there was a 3,200-word limit, and you went 3,205 words. You get one point off for going five words over. <laughs> you know, thank you, St. Augustine, for starting up this thing we call biblical exegesis. Okay? Also, I could get a 99 out of 100 on paper. For no good reason but that I said too many words. Right? But that's what they credit him with. He began to delve into scripture and, and helps to lay foundation for much of what even today we think about scripture. How we get into it. How we divide it. How we learn about what is going on in there. And in his commentary on Psalm 25, St. Augustine suggests that verse 10 speaks of both advents of Jesus, his first coming and his second coming. This is what he writes. And what ways will he teach them? But mercy wherein he is placable and truth wherein he is incorrupt, whereof he hath exhibited the one in forgiving sins, the other of judging deserts. deserts. 
And therefore, all the way of the Lord are the two advents of the Son of God, the one in mercy, the other in judgment. He then attaineth unto him, holding on his ways, who, seeing himself freed by no deserts of his own, lays pride aside and henceforward bewares of the severity of his trial, having experienced the clemency of his help to them that seek his testament and his testimonies, for they understand the Lord as merciful at his first advent and as the judge at his second who in meekness and gentleness seeks his testament when with his own blood he redeemed us to a new life and in the prophets and evangelists his testimonies. So what St. Augustine is saying is that when Jesus comes in his first time, he comes as a Lord of mercy, bringing salvation, bringing the forgiveness of sin, he breaks the power of canceled sin. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes the first time as a baby born in a manger with only lowly shepherds that know, Mary and Joseph who know. And then entered that little drummer boy, right? I don't know who wrote that song. But I'm fairly certain that after Mary gave birth to Jesus, she was not wanting the racket. No offense, Alexander of the little drummer boy. I can remember nights when we would get our children to sleep and Bobby and I would just look at each other and go, ah. and had anybody woken them up? Well, I'm just not sure there wouldn't have been a jail sentence involved afterwards. There were those days, right? Jesus is born. He's, he's not born into royalty. He's not born into, into anything of significance. In fact, God trusts a teenage unwed mother to take care of his son, the Messiah. The psalmist and Isaiah are trying to tell us something about Waiting. Can you imagine waiting and waiting and waiting? And then your Messiah is born in a manger? I'm not sure that I would wait for that. But here's the thing. When you and I are struggling and waiting, we might become weary, but we can find strength in God. We can wait. For Jesus to come again. We can do this. We can do this not because of what we have within us. On our own strength. But we can do this because the very spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is living in us and through us. We can struggle but we can wait. Whether the dreams are being fulfilled or not, whether there's loss in our life, whether there's just frustration of wondering, what is God actually doing? I don't see him doing anything around me anymore. We can wait in the Lord. We can hope. We can trust. God knows what we are going through. He knows. It doesn't necessarily mean that it makes the waiting any easier. It doesn't necessarily make the waiting any better. But when God is with us, waiting through the struggle, we're not alone. We're not alone. 
Andrew Murray spoke of the importance of our perspective of waiting on God. He said this, he said, We must not only think of our waiting upon God, but also of what is more wonderful still, of God waiting on us. The vision of him waiting on us will give new impulse and inspiration to our waiting upon him. It will give us unspeakable confidence that our waiting cannot be in vain. Let us seek even now at this very moment in the spirit of waiting on God to find out something of what it means. He has inconceivably glorious purposes concerning each and every one of his children. And you ask, how is it if he waits to be gracious that even after I come and wait upon him, he does not give the help I seek, but waits on longer and longer? Be assured that if God waits longer than you could wish, it is only to make the blessing doubly precious God waited 4,000 years to the fullness of time. Ere he sent his son, our times are in his hands. He will make haste for our help and not delay one hour too long. There's a phrase in there that kind of caught me. Something to really think about and chew on a little bit. It's the entire idea of the fullness of time. And that phrase needs a little bit of unpacking. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary at the fullness of time. It's kind of when everything in heaven and on earth lined up. Jesus uses that same phrase when he speaks in the New Testament about the Father sending him to return. Tell us when you're going to return. That's not for me to know, he says. It's not for you to know the day or the time. Only the Father knows the day or the time. It's the fullness of time that'll happen again. I, I, I always think about this when I think about it because I, I don't know, if you know me, you know I love movies. I love children's movies. I love Disney movies. There's a, a Disney movie when my kids were little called Hercules. Some of you are laughing at me now. There's these, in the story of Hercules, there's these three fates, and they talk about how when the planets all align and they give this little rhyming little thing, you know, what they're talking about is the fullness of time. You know, in the book of Daniel, he talked about there would be a time coming. The three wise men that come from the east, or we say there was three, there was probably quite a bit more. They were bringing some riches to the newborn king, and um, you didn't travel in small numbers with great wealth. We don't know exactly how many were there. We know there were three gifts, and probably that little drummer boy showed up, the one I loathe, the one that wakes up the kid. No, I'm just kidding. But when we see this happening, it, it's kind of hard to understand. How did these Zoesterian priests, that's who they were. We call them kings, but the Bible calls them magi. They, they weren't kings. They were actually priests from Persia. They worshiped the stars. They looked to the stars. And when they saw the star and began to follow it, pretty amazing where it led them. It leads them somewhere wherever Jesus was at the time. It's probably a, a few years after his birth because the, the distance to travel was great. It was enormous. They didn't just, you know, hop in their Chevys and drive down the road. 
They walked on camels. People were walking along. It was a long journey. And they find Jesus. The fullness of time is going to happen again when Jesus comes a second time. Everything is going to line up just right in heaven and on earth. And he will return. The Father is going to send him. We can be hopeful. We can be hopeful people while we wait on God. I know. It just seems so easy to just... uh, Things get dismal. Things get hard. Things get tough. It's not always easy. I get it. I hear it. I see it. I feel it. But there's something in me that says we can live differently as Christians because we have hope. We live as hopeful people. After Christ's birth, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple for circumcision. It's in Luke chapter 2, and they meet a man there named Simeon. The Bible describes him as good and godly and old. I don't know exactly what that means back then. But Simeon had been promised by the Holy Spirit to see the Messiah before he was to die. And he was hopeful and he waited. And where did he wait? On the temple steps. Simeon's story is simply this one. It's hope realized. God's mercy for his people. This is now closer than ever it has been before when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus up and Simeon sees him. God's mercy. He's holding God's mercy in his hands. Their hope in God is realized in the baby Jesus. And for us, we continue to wait on God for his return. And while we wait, while we hope, there's something to be done. We will strive to see God's movement in the world and the promises that he's given us. I told you earlier, I like movies and I like kids movies. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, Zootopia. How many of you have been to the DMV or the DOL lately? (laughs) Some of you have seen Zootopia, haven't you? I'm in good company this morning. Officer Judy Hoffs, cute little bunny police officer who's out handing out tickets, gets her little furry paws into a case and she just won't let it go. And she wants to get some information. And the issue is that the DMV is ran by sloths. Now, you know how fast a sloth moves, right? About like that. I know people doing these movies are putting these things in here, kind of a stab at things going on around, aren't they? It's one of my least play. I really don't like going in to renew my license. I don't. If my picture didn't look so bad on my last license, I wouldn't go in to try again for the next one. I'm just telling you. The last picture wasn't that bad, but the picture before 
I don't know if you all remember Pastor Mark Sturk. He was um, one of the pastors on our district, but he was also the sheriff for Spokane Valley. And um, I showed him my driver's license picture once, and he says, uh, Pastor Dan, I think I would put you in cuffs in the back of my car for that picture alone right there, right at that moment. I said, I know, it looks worse than any mugshot you've ever seen. He says, yeah, it does. You need to get that changed. It was horrible. Well, we make fun and we jest, but uh, reality, I often believe we fail to realize about our impatience about some things. Do you ever wonder why God didn't fix sin in Genesis chapter 4? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are out of the garden, right? Why didn't he fix it in chapter 4? He's God, right? I mean, doesn't it seem to you like he could have just done it almost immediately after? But he takes years, thousands of years to work his plan. N.T. Wright, uh, for Relevant Magazine, he wrote a little article when it appears God isn't at work. It's a great article, by the way. And he says this, I think part of our problem here is that when we read the Bible, we read it with long hindsight. We look and we say, oh yeah, there's God rescuing his people from Egypt. Well, yes, that is dramatic and that happened. But then in the Psalms, the poet are saying, has God forgotten us? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he abandoned us? It's been a long time now. The great book of Isaiah promised a great new moment when God would come in person and would be king and yet it's some 500 years before Jesus comes. During those 500 years, many wise Jews pondered and prayed and struggled. Other people said, oh, it's just a load of old mythology. It's never going to happen. But they kept on praying and waiting. And finally, this explosive thing happened, which we call Jesus. Now, I want you to think. I want you to think back to last Thursday was Thanksgiving, right? Maybe, maybe you didn't have a big family meal. We did. We had family come down. We had family come over. Um, think of some family gathering where you were the one hosting. There's a lot of preparation for that time. There's a lot of preparation for the time that you spend together. There's a lot of preparation for the meal that you prepare. I mean, some things just don't happen automatically. Think about making a home-cooked apple pie. Does anybody do that anymore? My dad made us an apple pie. Oh, I love apple pie, Kathy. I just, I get to eat it once in a while. I'm paying for it like all week, the rest of the week though. My dad made an apple pie. My grandpa used to make apple pies. Now, they didn't make their own crust. When we lived in Pomeroy, I met a few people who made their own crusts. But think about it. You core and you slice and you peel the apples. And, and when you take, and you got to use shortening. If you're going to make a crust, come on. If you're going to eat it and be bad, use the lard. Don't cut corners. Get some Crisco. Lots of it. 
Put it in that crust. Cut it into the flour and, and do all those kinds of things. And then you got to roll it out and, and do all that. And then you, you, you know, think about the rest of the meal. Green bean casserole. We didn't make ours homemade this year. We used canned beans. We used canned soup, you know. But I can remember when Grandma made it. She made her own cream sauce. She cut up the mushrooms. She, she had canned the beans, you know. And, and the fall before Thanksgiving, she'd canned the beans and, and done all of that stuff. Maybe you're not in it. Maybe you, maybe you know more about building. What about building a foundation for our home? Do you know hours are spent excavating foundations and making sure that everything is compacted and solid and, and everything is measured out before the concrete's poured and a home is built? Think about planting a garden. You seed and you fertilize and you water and you weed. I hate weeding. I hate it. When we used to have a garden, when we lived over in Kennewick, we would do this. I'd put down a row of newspapers in between the plant, rows of plants, and then I'd shake my grass clippings on top of that. And in the fall, we'd put leaves over all of it, and then the next spring, we'd till it under, right? But I did my stuff to get rid of the weeds, so I didn't have to weed anything. I hated that. I hated picking weeds. It takes time. It takes so much time. But we can strive to see God's movement in the world and the promise he has given us. We have stuff to do. When that says we will strive, that word strive means we are doing something. We are doing what needs to be done in God's kingdom. As we consider the ways many of those who believed before us dealt with the loss, the fear, the disappointment, and then the waiting on God... Think of Simeon. He saw the Messiah, but he didn't get to hear the message of the Messiah. He didn't get to experience the healing, the forgiveness, the mercy of the Messiah, but he saw him. Do you remember what his response was? I'll paraphrase. Okay, Lord, I can die in peace. I have seen the hope. It's real. Consider the ways of those who dealt with loss, fear, and disappointment while waiting on God and experience the strength and hope that God gives to those of us who wait. I'm going to challenge you to do this. I want you to go home. Maybe you could do it in your Sunday school class. I don't know. Grab a post-it note. I love post-it notes because you can stick them up everywhere. Whoever invented those is my hero. And I want you to write the verses of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 and 31 on it. I want you to put it on your mirror in the bathroom where you look every day. And I want you to remind yourself that even when things get their worst, even when things seem impossible, we can still have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this time today together as a family, Lord. And we want to put our hope, our trust, our faith in you. But we know that we cannot do it on our own strength. We cannot will ourselves to do it. The only way that we can fully depend upon you for our salvation 
is if you would continue to do a deeper work within each and every one of us. Holy Spirit, would you go to the depths of our soul? Lord God, help us to submit more fully and completely to you. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be able to do that deeper work within us so that while we are waiting for your son's second return, that your Holy Spirit will be working through us to the benefit of those around us. Lord God, I thank you and praise you for what you've done. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Lord God, help us to remember who you are. The promises that you have already made come, Lord God, that you have made come true already, that you will make good on this promise, that you will send your son to return to bring us home. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Lord God, we pray this in the name of your son, our savior, and we pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit living in us and through us. Amen.